You're very welcome back to News Talks on the Record with me, Kieran Cudahy. Now, imagine a bomb going off in a cinema, all because someone didn't like what was on the screen. I can think of a few films I went to where I might have liked that. Anyway, in the 20s and 30s, this was actually a reality in Ireland. A number of cinemas across the country were bombed, would you believe, for showing films that people deemed imperialistic. Well, as we move towards the 100th anniversary of the end of the war, next month, the 11th of November, we're going to look back at this controversial aspect of the legacy of the war years in Ireland. Donald Fallon is here to explain all. Donald, how are you? It's good to be here, good to be here. Um, I mentioned we are approaching this anniversary, you know, we had the Leinster this week, the, the, yes. the anniversary of that, and then the 11th of November is going to be the centenary of the armistice. Yeah, the war will be over by Christmas 1914, and we're, <laughs> we're, we're finally getting to the centenary of the end of it. And there'll be no getting away from it, you know, getting away from the, the, the end of the conflict, the armistice, the 11th of November, the 11th day, the 11th hour. Uh, but I suppose even coming up to it, we have tragic anniversaries along the way. You know, right as the war was limping towards its conclusion, earlier this week we had the the, the hundred anniversary of the sinking of the the RMS Leinster. Really tragic story, torpedoed and sunk by the Germans off the Irish coast on the tenth of October. More than five hundred people lost their lives. The single greatest loss of life in one day in the Irish Sea. But as you can imagine, when the war was over, and even actually, to be honest, when the war was being fought, there was an enormous World War I cinema. And these films were basically propaganda. In some cases, they were, they were skillful, but mostly they were propaganda. And the war was taking its place in mainstream culture even before it was over. So if a society goes through something as traumatic as World War I, you know, the question it has to ask itself is, what was that about? What did that mean? What was that sacrifice for? And today we're talking about shootouts on the streets, cinema projectors and screens being smashed and ripped, condemnation and even approval from some politicians for the bombing of cinemas. And as a medium, like cinema was rife for propaganda. What? Oh yeah, I mean, if you want the proof of that, look at the propaganda films of, of the Third Reich and Lenny Riefenstahl's, you know, I hate to call them masterpiece films, but they are masterpiece films, like The Triumph of the Will. And Goebbels, you know, the minister for propaganda in, in, in Nazi Germany, famously maintained that propaganda should be popular, not intellectually pleasing. You know, in other words, it's about getting a message across. And nobody utilised big screen propaganda quite like the Third Reich. But everyone did it. I mean, we think about propaganda as something the Nazis did. Everyone did it. And you had The Birth of the Nation in 1915. That was an American silent film. The first American movie ever shown inside the White House. Woodrow Wilson went to see it in the White House. And, you know, cinema was making this great leap from silent into talky. And the big screen offered kind of more and more potential. And if you were a recruitment officer, you were wondering, how do we use that medium? How do we use the cinema to get young lads into the army? But there's something powerful about a good silent movie, too. I mean, during the war years, there were silent movies often accompanied with a live score and propaganda today you know it's still part of life it's still an essential component of a nation at war's canon and we say a nation at war like that nation the United Kingdom we were a constituent part exactly. so we was, were exposed to all it this. was a broad nation you know and, and different films and different parts of it were, in, were impacting so you had the, the life of Lord Kitchener and a very reluctant Irishman but an Irishman nonetheless 1918 the building of the British Empire 1917 didn't show that one in Ireland for some reason but Irish audiences got some of them and there's one in 16, the Battle of the Somme, which is an enormous box office success in Dublin, as it was right throughout Britain. And they, they reckon 20 million Britons witnessed that 77-minute long silent film in its first six weeks on general release. That is absolutely staggering. It's a silent film, but they're saying that some people in the audience in Britain were able to lip-read and they knew what the lads were saying and they were none too impressed <laughs> by the dirty language of soldiers at the front. But newspapers were reporting that hundreds of people were being turned away daily. From, I can't remember a film in my time 
where the cinema had to turn away hundreds of people every day. And this is 1916 Dublin. So when you think about it, the rising has just happened. And yet they're turning hundreds of people away from cinemas, five minutes from the post office, because they can't fit them in to watch a World War I film. At the Theatre Royal, you had the actual band of the Royal Irish Fusiliers playing a live score to accompany that film. So this is happening all over Dublin. The Irish Times says that in the Rotunda, some Dublin heroes are actually shown in the third and fifth acts of this great film, while the largest guns in the world, the, where the largest guns the world have ever known are seen in action with the appalling results of the gunfire. So if your husband or son or brother was off in the trenches of Europe, this was a very rare chance to see what the front actually looked like. And the Republicans, I imagine, were not happy about this, the no, Fusiliers playing along to these propaganda they, movies. They couldn't match it. You see, the, the IRA didn't have the potential, the volunteers, they were still called, didn't have the potential to match it. And the IRA was conscious of the power of cinema, you know, in shaping public opinion and discourse. So there's this amazing moment when World War I does end and you get the, the armistice parade through Dublin. Thousands of people are marching through the streets of Dublin and there's cameras there recording this. And I presume what the IRA think is, oh, this is bad. You know, there's going to be footage of thousands of people waving Union Jacks in Dublin. They're going to show this in cinemas in Britain. You can't let that happen. And Joseph O'Connor, an IRA commandant, he talks about taking the cinema cameras which were recording the event and dumping them in the Liffey. I mean, they knew that this stuff couldn't make it back. And the Republican movement tried to use films as well, but the films they had weren't great. They were pretty basic stuff. I mean, they had a film during the War of Independence of Michael Collins, another senior Republican signing these doll bonds, as they were called. But it wasn't exciting. You know, it wasn't what the British were watching. John Plunkett, whose brother was executed in 1916, Joseph Mary Plunkett, he says the showing of the film only lasted a few minutes. This was partly in order to avoid the risk of capture. Immediately after being shown, it was removed. I was asked to take the film to Killarney and Carhus IV and as far as possible to arrange for its showing in any other worthwhile towns. There were a number of copies of the Dahl Loan film sent to other parts of Ireland. What do you want to watch? Do you want to watch The Battle of the Somme on a big screen in the Rotunda? Or do you want to watch a film about the Dahl Loans being shown in Cahars Iveen in secret? Yeah, you, know, you, not... you, you mentioned Sidney Lenny Reifenthal and, and some of the, his works being masterpieces. These weren't masterpieces. They weren't. They weren't. They were crude. They were crude. And you know, the war films were something else entirely. They were big blockbuster films. The Battle of Jutland, Ypres, Mon- I mean, these were all amazing films, I think, looking at them now. But the producer of them, uh, Harry Bruce Wolfe, he's been described as an ardent imperialist. He knew exactly what he was making. Intellectuals, did they like them? No, because they thought they were just um, they thought they were just banging the drums of war. You know, that was the view of them. There was a great magazine called Close Up, which was an influential avant-garde film magazine. So <laughs> you can imagine what they thought about Joe Bloggs going to the cinema and all at all. all ten people who read it. Yeah, exactly. All <laughs> ten intellectuals who read it in the, the universities. They said, we want, we want a race that understands what acceptance of warfare means by all means let us have war films only let us have war straightened as it is disease and discomfort always destructive in its effects let us get away from this nursery formula that to be in a uniform is to be a hero that brutality and waste are not are not to be condemned provided they are disguised in flags medals and cheering that's a kind of more nuanced view now i hope we as societies have uh, of war and women in particular were kind of horrified by these films the women's cooperative guilds uh, passed a resolution condemning large numbers of films glorifying war calling them a kind of boys adventure you know with no critical analysis but that's what people wanted you know and in Dublin tens of thousands of families who participated in the war effort were willing to go and watch these films and this became a kind of an annual event the showing of these films and some of the issues around them there. yeah and then every you have every November you've got a film about World War One on in any Dublin cinema and then every November you have the the, just the, the, the rhythm, the clock-like motion of rioting in Dublin City and in Cork, in Galway, but specifically in Dublin, you get the going through the motions where you have Republicans coming out onto the streets, mainly young lads, exchanging digs with basically what they perceive to be loyal subjects. So you have young Republicans 
going up to say Trinity College Dublin and every year on the 11th of November the students of Trinity come out and they sing God Save the King and I think they do it to be honest more to annoy people than anything else <laughs> and these, these young IRA volunteers Frank Ryan and the like just start throwing digs at them then the IRA campaign changes they start bombing monuments in Dublin on Remembrance Sunday William Vorange was up on College Green he's one victim and then the cinemas and the first cinema they go for is the masterpiece on Talbot Street so we're talking like right in the middle of town here mm. November 1925 it's showing a World War one presentation and it's dramatic stuff I mean the Irish Times says at 7 o'clock yesterday morning three men exploded a powerful landmine in the wide entrance to the Masterpiece Cinema in Talbot Street the explosion blew out a large portion of the front of the building and wrecked the glass in nearly a score of houses in the street that's a very very serious course of action because you don't like a film on screen uh, so that's what the IRA were doing bombing these monuments bombing the cinemas what about the Sinn Féin position incredibly the, position? the politicians I mean, you would think this would be widely condemned. Sinn Féin have a Nordesh days after the Masterpiece Cinema bombing and they pass a motion which basically instructs all party delegates to take action against British propaganda in cinemas. And Sean Lamass, we think about Sean Lamass, you know, one of Ireland's great Taoiseachs, uh, you know, this great political modernising figure who dragged Ireland, kicking and screaming into the modern age on the front of Time magazine in the 1960s. Sean Lamass is the anti-treaty minister for defence and he's a founding member of Fianna Fáil later on. But he tells them, he says, the principles of Irish nationalism are in danger of extinction amongst a large section of people as a result of this propaganda. I think, reading between the lines, Lamas basically said, fair play to the lads who bombed the cinema and hopefully there'll be a few more like it. And there were. You know, two years after that film, Mons is systematically targeted across the country. Cinema raids, bombs going off in Sligo, a Mills bomb and a landmine are placed under the cinema box after a performance. In Dundalk, one cinema's raided, three copies burnt by young men carrying revolvers. So this isn't just a Dublin phenomenon. You know, all across the country, these cinemas were in big trouble. Uh, and this wasn't just a few lads kind of on a solo run within the IRA. It was coming from the top. I mean, the, the chief of staff of the IRA, Morris Toomey, Moss Toomey, was telling IRA OCs across the country, get these films, get them out of the cinema, but not to de- for whatever reason, not to destroy the copies. Uh, and he claims, he's, you know, the IRA say these films are not a true representation of the horrors of the European war, but they have for its aim the glorification of the British army. British propaganda pictures cannot be tolerated in Ireland. And they threaten drastic action against cinemas. Now, if you're a cinema manager and you know that a number of cinemas have already been bombed, you might be willing to take a cinema off release. So the, the, film era off release. the era we're talking about here in Ireland, we're talking post-Civil War, like what was the status of the IRA. The 20s into the 30s are hungry years, you know, for everyone. And the IRA is losing volunteers like mad. I mean, they've lost in the Civil War. They can't keep young members here. They tell their young members, you can't leave, you can't emigrate by order. But they go, you know, they go to London, they go to New York, they go to Chicago, and they just, they, they abandon politics, an awful lot of them. And you're left to what's pretty much a rump. And I think when you look at lads going around putting bombs in landmines and cinemas. That's not the sign of a strong IRA. That's clearly a movement that's at a low ebb. It's emerging from the feed. It's struggling to keep its membership active and engaged. And I think a lot of these things were, were easy to do. You know, blowing up a man on a horse who's made out of bronze is an easy thing to do. You know, putting a bomb into a cinema is an easy thing to do. Hitting someone a dig on the 11th of November because they're singing God Save the King, that's an easy thing to do. And over time, some of the leading people in the IRA started asking themselves, God, I, mean, I didn't join the IRA to do this. I didn't join the IRA to put a bomb in a cinema or to blow up a monument. And eventually, they come around to this new way of thinking. And you get this amazing moment then Remembrance Sunday 1934, we're parading through the streets of Dublin alongside kind of wounded and bemedaled veterans of the war. You have Republicans and they're carrying banners. One of them says, remember the dead, fight for the living. Frank Ryan, who'd been involved in this ludicrous stuff in the 20s, he said, 
Did you believe that you'd ever see me on an armistice day in Dublin marching beside an ex-British soldier who wore his great war medals? For ten years I shoved my way to the front of the anti-imperial demonstrations. I've taken and given blows and clashes with ex-servicemen and police. I claim the record for capturing Union Jacks. Armistice Day was our day for demonstrating against imperialism. And imperialism to us was typified by bemedaled ex-soldiers. But last Sunday I walked with bemedaled ex-soldiers. So we'd gone on this incredible journey. And this stuff is, is the stuff of madness. But the Ireland of the 1920s and 30s was prone to occasional madness. I like that in the IRA in the 1920s they have, were keeping records of who had seized the most Union Jacks. <laughs> Fra- Frank Ryan was top of the table. Good man, Frank. Frank, Frank Ryan was a self-described street fighting man. All right, look, my thanks to Donald <laughs> Fallon, author of the Come Here To Me blog, book volume two, which is out now. That is it from me today. Off the ball, as always, is up next here on News Talk. My thanks to Jojo Cardozo on sound and the rest of the production team, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan. Now, to play us out today, October 14, 1968, 50 years ago today, the Beatles completed the White Album. Not officially called the White Album, just the Beatles. It's called the White Album because of the colour of the cover. Lots I could go with, but I'm going to go with this. Blackbirds singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You are only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird